will officially welcome everyone to this month's edition of From the Field, the Farm Chat with Idaho Wheat. I'm Casey Chummer. I'm the Executive Director of the Idaho Wheat Commission. And based on participant feedback from our previous webinars, we have moved to a true forum format so that everyone will be able to get on their microphone, ask their questions, and have a little bit more of a discussion. The chat chat feature will still be functioning. So if you prefer to type in a question, I can read that at the end of the presentation as well. Uh, today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Arash Rashed with us. He's an associate professor of ecological entomology from the University of Idaho. And he's gonna talk to us today about grasshoppers, but I will mention that we have several research projects on different topics with Dr. Rashed. Um, that we are that are ongoing and so we are very familiar with him and appreciate all of the work that he does on behalf of wheat farmers. So without further ado, this will be about a 30 minute uh, discussion and go ahead Arash. Well, thank you Casey for the introduction. Uh, it's uh, and thank you for the invitation. Um, so today uh, I was asked to uh, talk about grasshoppers and uh, I'm sharing my slides now. So just a few uh, to help me with uh, leading into the uh, discussion at the end. Um, so I just like this first uh, the, the, this, uh, photo that I saw on Google. So I thought that it would start my presentation with this. I thought it's a very nice artwork, uh, but a lot of us actually don't like this insect because they're causing damage, but you know, um, I don't know about you, but as kids, I used to play with them all the time. And I found these uh, grasshoppers fascinating, but kind of scary when they actually kick um, to defend themselves. Um, before I get into details about grasshoppers, I thought it's important to differentiate the grasshoppers and katydids because that's, some, that's a question that we get some, sometimes. Generally, their body outline is slightly different, but they both have those uh, powerful legs that would assist them with jumping and moving around. Uh, and the main thing that would differentiate these two groups is their antenna. You know, well, as entomologists, we have other characteristics that we could, uh, we use to tell them apart. But um, for um, general public, we usually just talk about the antenna. They're shorter and thicker uh, when it comes to grasshoppers, but they are more hair-like and long when it comes to katydids. Uh, and here in this photograph, um, Here's the antenna of a katydid. As you can see, it's hair-like and very long. And for grasshoppers, it is much shorter. And with this definition, Mormon crickets that are probably you're familiar uh, with their uh, damage, especially in Southern Idaho and Utah areas. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, there are large populations that could cause damage to wheat crop or other crops. Um, they also uh, fall under the category of katydids because they have these long antenna. Now, uh, we're going to talk about grasshoppers here primarily because they were having an issue in multiple locations across Idaho. They're usually a sporadic pest, both in terms of locations and when it comes to year. Uh, so they're not always there. And there are some triggers that uh, would promote their populations and makes them uh, to become damaging uh, to crops. And I will talk about some of those here. And um, 
in, in, in next slides. As I, when I say uh, sporadic, it means they're also highly mobile. So if you see them one day in one location, it doesn't mean that the population is there and it doesn't mean the next day and it doesn't mean that the population would not appear somewhere else in the following day. So they're highly mobile population as well. And uh, as I said, most of the times numbers are in check, but uh, a lot of times uh, due to environmental factors, they could become stiffers um, in our region. Uh, I, there are many species of grasshoppers that we have. Um, I uh, found a box in our museum, so I snapped this photo of some of the examples that uh, we may come across, but the four that we, uh, I usually have seen more in the fields. I uh, put here the differential grasshoppers, red-legged grasshoppers, uh, migratory grasshoppers, and two-striped uh, grasshoppers. And uh, it's just basically the names that they get as based on morphological uh, traits that they have. Um, usually, sometimes you can see variation in color, so we need to keep that in mind too. Uh, these grasshoppers vary, uh, vary in, their, uh, in the type of food that they uh, uh, utilize, but most of them, the ones that I um, wanna be talking about here, they usually talk about a wide range of crops um, and uh, including grasses and broadleaves. Uh, a little bit about their life cycle. Um, they usually lay their eggs in late summer and fall and in upper two inches of soil. Uh, in this photograph on the uh, right side, this right bottom side of the screen, you can see a grasshopper that penetrated the soil. As you can see, extended their abdomens, uh, their uh, telescopic abdomens into the soil and uh, uh, she'll be laying eggs um, here, the number of eggs. Uh, I think I, oh, I have it here. Yeah, it could be between 20 to 100 total, but they usually leave them in egg sacs. And here's an example here. You could have multiple, usually even up to 12, 20 eggs in each of these egg sacs. And here, of course, you see uh, it's way more. It uh, just varies based on the species. But in average, we are expecting a female would lay 100 individual eggs in total uh, in these sacs that they <coughs> make in the ground. Excuse me. Uh, their life cycle is incomplete, uh, which means that they don't go through those, uh, the pupal stage per se. So when the, the female lay eggs, lays the eggs, uh, they would hatch and the individual that uh, comes out of those eggs uh, would exactly look like their adults with the exception that they're smaller in size and they don't have wings. So what happens is that as they molt, they gradually feed, they molt, and they develop those little wings um, and they start becoming larger and larger in size. Uh, the highly mobile stage is adult stage because that's the only stage that they actually have fully developed wings. And during these stages, they could be more, uh, during nymphal stage, we call them, they could be less mobile. They walk around, hop around, and uh, they're usually concentrated in the spots uh, uh, that they um, move to and they're less mobile, as I mentioned. The female, when they oviposit, they like to uh, oviposit, especially these species that I'm going to be uh, that I'm talking about in Idaho. They like undisturbed hard soil. You could find those on the roadsides, uh, pastures, uh, outside edges of the fields when you have natural vegetation, and uh, when the eggs hatch, uh, uh, these little nymphs continue feeding in those areas, primarily focused on those areas. And uh, they go through five or six uh, of molting or instars 
until they make it to the large to their uh, full adult stage and they can uh, they can move away. <clears throat> uh, when they get to the adult stage, they can live for uh, one to three months after that and continue feeding. And sometimes they become very damaging towards the end of the season. A lot of cases that uh, uh, we see uh, in Idaho, late uh, summer, early fall, especially when we have warmer falls, extended uh, uh, late summers, uh, that's when they become really damaging. And here is just, I, I found this uh, uh, image on Google V. It was very nice. So I thought of using it. Of course, they're pretty beat up, as you can see in this uh, photo, but that's generally how these are the eggs, uh, the first uh, nymphal stage, and then they move until they become adults. And this is an example of the damage that they, they can actually cause. Uh, so we're going to be talking about generation time and damage risk. Uh, these are all approximate when I give the, mo uh, the months here. Of course, we know that uh, the uh, environmental condition and climate is changing constantly. So it all depends. It's just uh, <clears throat> what most usual, uh, usually we expect to see these timelines. Um, the egg hash time varies uh, among those species that I uh, brought up. We had two stri uh, striped uh, grasshopper. Uh, I use GH for grasshopper to make it less texty. Uh, so they usually come out in mid-May to, uh, to late May. We have migratory grasshoppers uh, that come out usually late May to early June and uh, red-legged grasshoppers throughout June. We expect to see their um, emergence from the eggs. Uh, when you have good conditions, they may, we may have early hatching. How early? It's usually as early as a month, uh, which could be a problem. Uh, so basically we would have their presence in the field for longer periods when they hatch um, early. And, uh, and then adults would stay in the environment usually for longer periods, and then they can cause damage later into the summer as well. Uh, the crops that are susceptible, they're usually early, very early seeded crops. Um, some growers have the tendency to do that. Uh, I understand there are <clears throat> reasons for it, especially soil moisture would be suitable at the areas. So uh, growers decide to go in and seed early, or if they're gra grazing, they just want to get longer period of grazing out of their crop, which is not common in, <clears throat> in our state. Um, but that would that early seeding would make the crop vulnerable to a lot of uh, uh, pest conditions, including grasshoppers, including barley yellowdorf virus, as you heard about, uh, and uh, Haitian fly damage, which we is usually concentrate in northern Idaho, but we just recently received a report from southern Idaho again um, last week or a couple of weeks. It was last week. So these are things that we need to keep in mind uh, that uh, early seeding is not necessarily beneficial. And a lot of times we think if you use seed treatment, it's going to protect us from these conditions, but that's not the case. And I'm going to be talking about that cereal school later. So uh, if you have any questions about that, you could ask me there as well. For other pests, I mean. But the question that we have, uh, we get most of the time is that what is promoting these outbreaks? Why are these grasshoppers not there, but they're there some years? Uh, you know, we have some general questions. Uh, explanations which uh, variation in climate is one ex uh, reason that is being uh, uh, proposed which is uh, actually right and we're going to focus on that a little bit more in this next slide. So in order to understand what could promote their 
conditions or their outbreaks. Uh, we need to know what they like and what they do not like. And uh, so that would actually give us a better um, uh, ability to predict what may be happening. And then we can prepare for that a little better. <clears throat> they do not like uh, extended cool and wet weather early in the season, early in the spring. So egg is the only stage that is the stage that these grasshoppers are, most of these species of grasshoppers overwinter in Idaho. So they lay their eggs, females lay their eggs in the soil and they stay like that throughout the winter. Now, if you have a warm spring, uh, they would emerge and start causing damage. What they don't like is when the spring is extended, it's late, uh, you get cold weather, these eggs stay in the soil for a long time, you get extended rain, um, wet weather, it would promote damage, it would cause uh, eggs to die in the soil. So these are all um, not good for the grasshopper. Actually an extended, uh, uh, a disease especially these, these eggs and uh, the nymphs that will come out of these eggs are ex extremely susceptible to diseases that could spread rapidly in the population. So those wet conditions and extended cool will promote that as well. What these grasshoppers really enjoy is hot, warm weather, uh, especially in the spring, the eggs would hatch. Uh, at that time, if you get some uh, quick rain uh, for a day or two, it would help the, uh, um, the green to come up. It would help grasses. And that's what would be, that would be the, basically the ideal condition for them. So the short period of rain, a lot of rain is not going to impact grasshoppers actually benefiting them. What they don't like is extended wet conditions that would be um, detrimental to their populations. So you get these early hatch, you have plenty of food available, so they're going to start feeding. Uh, other things that they uh, like, as I mentioned, undisturbed soil. If you have a no-till, a lot of systems in our uh, uh, state supports that in dryland because uh, we we want to uh, we don't want to till. We want to preserve water, and that actually is supporting um, grasshopper populations. But again, grasshoppers, they, they, are, they have the tendency to be on the edges of the field and also outside of the field as well. That's where they really like to lay their eggs. Um, <clears throat> if you have an area uh, that uh, is not dense, if you're um, outside of your field, you have these uh, grasses, you have combination of grasses, let's say broadleaf, natural vegetation, they don't like dense canopies. They like those plants to be there, but they don't want it to be dense. So one way to um, discourage them from laying their eggs is to make sure that you have enough uh, plants on those places that, um, that these grasshoppers may go and utilize. Uh, they actually like sun because they thermoregulating sun. I was looking at some old literature uh, actually just before this talk, and I came across this uh, bulletin that they were talking about. Uh, 19, it's 1957. I found it in one of these old, old boxes in my predecessor's um, cabinet. And uh, uh, it's, it's actually written very, um, in a very a casual way. And I, I like reading these old, old uh, documents. And they were saying, well, you know, uh, in large populations, when we have these extreme outbreaks of grasshoppers, which luckily we haven't seen here uh, in the, uh, in lately, um, you know, these grasshoppers could cover the ground and uh, you walk basically into a ground that is just, uh, it's the floor mat is grasshoppers. So uh, he was suggesting that if you, um, for fun, he could just go there and 
gradually, slowly approach these um, groups of grasshoppers. So his shade would cover their populations that are laying down on the floor. And these grasshoppers would suddenly start moving to outline of that shade. And it was just something fun for him to do. Um, that's how much they like um, sun. And uh, if you make a dense canopy, you're not gonna like that, um, at least to stay there. Um, now, when we have a dry season, which has been the situation uh, last year and the year before that, uh, we have these plants that are around the field edge uh, or, or the, in, in rangelands that would dry really quick. They are, they are usually not managed and they respond to stress pretty quick. And that's what these grasshoppers don't like. They start taking off and they get into fields and start feeding. So that's one of the things that could promote their movement into uh, fields and uh, they could feel, uh, feed on uh, wheat head if you're planting wheat, barley head if you're planting barley, and that's going to be really damaging in large populations. And of course, again, as I said, if you have early seeded crop, these populations at those dry times towards in the season, they move into early planted crops and um, they would basically um, uh, get rid of the seedlings, the fresh seedlings that is available there. <clears throat> and when you have these extended falls, I also put as a note, you know, you have extended warmer falls or extended late summers into fall, then it would give these grasshoppers more time to lay eggs. So more eggs per individual is gonna be laid uh, during those extended um, warm weather towards the end of the season which would translate into higher populations of grasshopper in the subsequent season. And then imagine if the subsequent season, though those egg hatching is gonna be, uh, we have suitable conditions for egg hatching, that's gonna be a disaster. So these are all basically uh, factors that would uh, lead to an outbreak, could lead to an outbreak eventually. Um, so, uh, there was something else that I wanted to talk about. I think I missed in one of my slides. Or maybe I'm missing actually one slide and I do not know why. Anyway, uh, if I remember that, I'll mention it was related to, uh, to outbreaks. So I, I talked about some of these factors that influence the outbreak of uh, grasshoppers and uh, we are aware of. So we use that information. Uh, I just talked about temperature, I talked about moisture because they are most important in predicting these outbreaks, but there are other factors too. Uh, for example, you know, these different grasshopper species, they prefer different types of plants, especially when they're younger and natural vegetation. So if there are conditions that are impacting population of some type of food for these grasshoppers more than the other, it will impact their, their survival. Um, and so it's not usually that simple to predict where the outbreaks are going to be. However, you know, there is a good, relatively good knowledge of these uh, factors that could influence the populations. And uh, we have this uh, predicting, predictive models that USDA uses to predict outbreaks of these grasshoppers every year. And it's always available uh, online. And I put a QR code here if you basically, hopefully it works, uh, I think I checked it. If you go there, it will take you to that page and you can see this uh, historical data. So they get the data from the year before and to predict what's gonna happen in the subsequent year. Uh, 
So I put, I think this was the one that I chose for, yeah, it says 2022 rangeland data. That's what you're expecting. Um, and you could actually go to that data set and this prediction is based on what they saw in 2021. And uh, you could uh, look at these, use this hot uh, heat map and see where the hot locations are, where, where what locations are gonna be um, in higher risk versus the other. So we have that data and we use that, they, or and I shouldn't say we, they uh, researchers that work on grasshoppers use that data in order to be able to predict where the hottest spots may be. We have 17 Western um, states that are being monitored constantly for grasshoppers uh, and Idaho is one of them. I'm looking at this map uh, and I can perhaps say, I, maybe this, uh, their, their uh, sampling or their data is concentrated in certain areas as well. So you, we may wanna keep that in mind too. But, but this is a good resource. I, I found it very helpful. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about actually on, on one of the previous slides when I was talking about favorable condition is that, you know, we talked about the number of eggs. We talked about, um, I, uh, or I talked about uh, um, springs that are hot, warmer, and we get suddenly one quick rain and then stops. Uh, that really promotes, it's good for grasshoppers because it would assure that the food is there and uh, also at the same time, the rain is not too much rain or too much wet weather that would cause them to die. Um, when these eggs, they hatch, those nymphs are very susceptible to these conditions. So they can die really easily. Uh, about 40% of these eggs would actually survive. Uh, and make it to the next stage. So any condition that could promote the additional survival, of these nymphs are very important. And when you get those hot weathers and food available, that nymph can quickly feed. And when they feed, they're, uh, initially they start feeding and their digestive system starts to work, then uh, there's a higher chance for them to survive. So that little period that they're very susceptible, they just hatch, they're trying to find food. If they don't find them quick, they're gonna die. And that's how important those um, having green available to them is uh, at earliest stages. So what about their damage? When, when numbers get really high, they become damaging. Um, and as I said, field edges are highly susceptible. You, you go to uh, outside of the field, they're flying around or hopping around. If you go inside the field, if you feed usually their large populations, but expectation is that as you get inside the field, you'll have less and less grasshoppers, hopefully. And that's normally, that's what we expect to see normally. Uh, question is that how many of them we, I, we, we would have, uh, we should have to be concerned about. It all depends on uh, different factors, the environmental condition that year is something for you to judge uh, how much production, how much, what would be the, uh, gain from that year for you and then uh how old is your field is, is a big uh, big factor if your field is very young if you have a sibling stage field that's just planted if you have three grasshoppers per um square yard means that you would need management you have to be careful these things can feed really fast i was looking at some uh reading at some of these articles uh about grasshoppers and they were talking about numbers um you know, so they said, you know, 15, if you have 15 grasshoppers uh, per square yard is a large population. Uh, and that would basically translate into 100 pounds of grasshoppers for an acre. And 100 pounds of grasshoppers is almost like the uh, size of a 
sheep, right? So they can just feed and graze on those things. And the unique thing about these grasshoppers or the difference between feeding by grasshopper and an and uh, animal that is grazing in a range is that they have small mouth parts and they snap the plant right at the base. They basically get rid of it. When you're grazing, you know, you're grazing with large animal. So the way that they feed, you still have plant to recover. So sometimes feeding by these grasshoppers would not even leave that chance. So this is, uh, this makes a big difference. Um, and of course, damage to heads is critical if you have late season damage and you haven't harvested the crop and the uh, seed are there for uh, these grasshoppers to feed on, that would be disastrous as well. So there are control measures uh, that can, can be taken for these grasshoppers. Um, I know that we would like to see them. We usually recommend integrated pest management for grasshoppers and these kind of sporadic uh, pests. Uh, management in rangelands range are done by the government, by the state um, in, the, in the years that we have um, outbreaks. Uh, but uh, regardless, you need to inspect vegetation around the fields at least 10 days before planting, because remember, you know, the seedlings are very susceptible to these uh, grasshoppers. So start monitoring 10 days before you're planting, look at the natural vegetation around the fields, those roadsides, places that, or rangeland that you have right next to your field, that these grasshoppers uh, may move into the field. If you early seed at that time, that's not good. I'm talking about fall planting. In the spring, early seeding is good because by the time grasshoppers start moving, your plants are larger and uh, they can withstand more damage by these grasshoppers. So these are the things that you have to pay attention to uh, if you have a fall crop versus a, a spring crop. So early seed in the spring is good, late fall uh, is uh, good, um, and we have to uh, keep that in mind. Crop rotation, not just for this uh, grasshoppers, for other grasshoppers, for other crop, uh, mm, disease conditions uh, and insect pest conditions would make a big difference. So always try to keep that rotation in your field. And I'm talking about real rotation with broad leaves, not um, barley wheat rotation, which sometimes um, uh, is um, uh, growers are, they tend to do that. And we, we need to try to avoid as much as possible. Tillage would certainly help to keep the numbers down. Uh, again, no-till is uh, predominant in a lot of our dryland conditions. Most of our, our, all of our dryland and rain bed um, areas. So uh, it may not be a possible uh, possibility. Uh, but trap strips is something that has been used by some producers and they suggest that it will work. So I put a little photo there. So basically you uh, keep the outer edge bare and then you have a uh, uh, strip of crop in the middle. Uh, and then the next uh, few um, feet, maybe 20 feet or something, no planting. So that little strip there would help to attract those grasshoppers. And then you could just go in there and have some targeted control, either crush that or just spray it. Uh, and that way, still it would be a, you're, you're integrating the a culture approach with the chemical approach, reducing the cost of chemical uh, applications. And of course, the risks that are going to be associated with that, um, not just for this pest and, you know, other conditions. You know, you don't want to spray something broad spectrum, you feel for grasshoppers, and then you have an outbreak of something else because you get rid of, got rid of the natural enemy. So these are things that you always uh, need to keep in mind and we try to promote as well. 
Uh, insecticides um, are recommended when you have only large uh, populations, uh, more than seven in 10 square foot within a field, uh, more than 12 when uh, outer edges of the field uh, in 10 square foot. Um, actually, I'm just gonna change these, 10 square foot is close enough, but you, you know, you wanna, we are basically talking about uh, uh, three square yards. So how we can come up with these, um, it's, it's kind of some, it's, it's a practice that you need to do a few times to be comfortable with it, how to monitor. So what you can do is just to look from distance, uh, focus on one square foot and uh, keep an eye on one square foot around, uh, around that square foot. So you would have nine square feet in that area that you're monitoring. Um, so keeping your eye, your eye on the central square foot, you can just gradually approach that area. Uh, that would help you to see better. And then you would also see bet better. And then you would also see these grasshoppers start hopping away. Uh, you can count those. And that would help you to give an easier estimate. If you do that a few times, you can do it. Uh, so do as many spots in the field as possible. Usually try to uh, pick distance, distance spots, for example, 50 feet apart, 60 feet apart, 100 feet apart. So you get a better idea of what the situation is throughout the whole field. Um, as I said, we expect them to be more concentrated uh, on the field edges. Uh, management uh, with insecticides, we also, as I said, you know, there is larger scale management with the years that we had outbreaks, they have those. Uh, and they're also integrated. What they usually do, they don't spray whole rangeland. They, uh, they spray strips. So they just go uh, spray one strip and then leave uh, some parts unsprayed and then spray another one, another one. So basically alternate between those strips that they spray uh, if it's air spray. And that way you have other organisms uh, to move into these areas that are, are not, they would enable them to move and be protected. Uh, and at the same time, you can cover a way larger area with the same amount of insecticides that you're uh, applying. And of course the cost would be much less. Um, and it has been effective. They tried that in Montana. I was looking at these articles. They tried that in Wyoming. They, it's, this approach has been real effective in, um, in years that we had outbreak. And of course, we have baits that are being spread throughout. Uh, and these baits, uh, they're usually uh, uh, carbamates uh, that, uh, that is applied. Uh, if you have rain, wet weather, those, uh, those baits could go bad quicker. So sometimes it needs, they need to be reapplied as well. So they're not, they may not last as, as much in the environment. So these are things that uh, we just need to keep in mind in order to uh, make sure we do everything we can to protect our crops. Um, insecticide recommendations, they of course differ from each state for each state. And uh, we every year we go and update the insect management handbook for the Pacific Northwest. And I, uh, you're probably familiar with this, but regardless, I added a QR code here so you can just go there. And it's not just for grasshoppers, you can any crop that you have problems with, you would have a list of insecticides that are um, made available that you could choose from. Those includes organic in, uh, or um, 
uh, OMRI certified chemicals for those who do, um, or uh, applications for those who do organic and also for conventional production, there is a whole range of insecticides that are recommended. But again, um, make sure you do uh, consultation before you make those applications. Uh, make sure that you follow instructions on those labels for safety, um, take them seriously and uh, make sure you actually have that threshold that you need to spray. It's not just environmental recommendations, it's, uh, it would save you uh, costs of insecticide application by far, especially for these kind of pests that are usually patchy and uh, may have, may be able, we can just control them by a more targeted and integrated approach. Um, grasshopper program, uh, through Idaho State Department of Ag, you need to go to their invasive species uh, webpage. Again, I put a, a QR code there. Uh, they are able uh, to help in some cases. They uh, receive your reports. Um, they can look into it and uh, provide you with additional information if you need to. And of course, we are always, uh, we are here to help uh, uh, if it is needed um, at any point. I think this was my uh, last presentation. Um, so I just wanted to thank some of the funding sources uh, that we have, um, especially I'm gonna thank Idaho producers for their support. A lot of the work that we do is uh, through your checkoff dollars that, uh, that you provide uh, to Idaho Wheat Commission, Idaho Barley Commission, and uh, all those funds go through uh, the research that we are doing. I didn't talk about research here today, um, but I'm going to be talking about some of those um, at the different crop schools that we have across the state. So if you're attending those, you would you would hear about them as well. Uh, so with that, I just want to pass the microphone to uh, Casey and uh, we can start the discussion. That's great. Thank you so much. This was a great presentation and I am very saddened that I got all through middle school and did not know about the telescopic abdomen. So I was very happy that you had that <laughs> included in your presentation. That was very cool. Um, so I would love to open up the forum now for questions. Everybody's microphone is, um, is able to be turned on. So go ahead and ask questions if you have them. And if, there's, if everybody's asking it, go ahead, Matthew. Uh, you mentioned that grasshoppers are sporadic. Do you expect to see outbreaks become more prevalent in the future? Um, that is what is uh, mostly suggested. You know, of course, um, you know, we can't have a definitive yes, but the direction that we have been going, especially what I'm seeing in the past few years, and it would, with the continuation in drought, uh, in these dry episodes that we are seeing, um, so I would say we should be more uh, aware of this problem and keep our eye uh, out there. There is no reason to panic. We just address them as they come. But as I said, you know, these predictive models that we have, no model is perfect, but, you know, we have, we know factors, at least a lot of factors that could influence um, their life cycle and support their populations. And based on those, you know, these predictive models are developed uh, for a lot of the pests. Unfortunately, we know those 
but we still haven't put together to be able to put us in a position to make predictions. Uh, but for uh, this pest, for grasshoppers, luckily we have that that is being done and we have a grasshopper team that they have decades of experience addressing these. And actually one of these concerns is that um, they are, they are uh, a generation that a lot of them are about to retire. So there is their concern about, um, you know, uh, educating the next generation to take over these kind of programs and programs and addressing these complex, um, um, you know, systems and pests that could be, um, could be widespread outbreak, could cause widespread outbreaks. And uh, uh, I was reading, reading these papers and they were suggesting at least five years of overlap is needed. So all this experience is being transferred into, you know, the next generation of these um, people that are addressing grasshopper and, um, you know, uh, catered outbreaks. And uh, that's the direction. So we're lucky to have this predictive system. But if you ask me with the direction that we are going, we just need to be more aware of factors that could influence their outbreak and just add, address them as, as they come. At least know what our resources are. So that's one of the things that I try to, um, you know, put in this talk that it's not that there's nothing out there about grasshoppers. We have a lot of resources. Uh, we have predictive models that we could go at least to see, oh, if in my area, uh, how worried should I be? Um, and then simple thing for all of us just to keep an eye out and go and see what the numbers look like. So grasshopper is something that you go out in your field, you see all the time, they hop around, but it doesn't mean that they're damaging. So we don't wanna you know, worry about their presence, uh, just count them um, and look at the damage that they're causing, look at the stage of the crop. And these are, um, you know, again, these resources that I provided um, would, would help you to determine the need for it. Just, yeah, so. Hopefully I answered your question. I couldn't say yes, 100%, but I'm saying the pattern uh, indicates that we have to be very, um, we have to keep our, our, eye out, our eyes out for this pass. Thank you. Arash, can you hear me? I'm trying to do this from a telephone. I'm not sure if it's working. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, can you talk for a minute about Spraying adult grasshoppers and using pyrethroids versus organophosphates and with with the stopping of production of Lorfan, do we have any other organophosphates that are still going to be available in the future? And I've typically been mixing the two because I've been told pyrethroids have a little bit more residual and the, the organos kind of knock them down fast. Is that correct? Or, or you know, explain that to me. So... <clears throat> You know, any I um, I didn't really look into the list of insecticides for grasshoppers, but I provided that link for the Pacific Northwest Handbook that they have a list of insecticides there. Of course, Lorisben is not going to be on the list. Um, any chemical that had um, uh, chlorpyrifos is not going to be on that list anymore. Um, and uh, but still, the pyrethroids they are. Um, you know, I, I'm very hesitant to recommend pyrethroids, not just for this, for any pest, because of their, 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 they're a broader spectrum. They, they kill everything pretty much that comes into contact with. So we want to use that as a last resort. But when you 
since you asked, I, I, I think I uh, saw uh, 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 Mustang Max is uh, on the list uh, when it comes to pyrethroids. These are, you know, of course, contact insecticides and they would knock down the populations real quick. Um, and of course, they would knock down the natural enemy populations real quick too. So keep that in mind. And I, uh, uh, as I said, count before you apply those insecticides and make sure they're, they're damaging. We see a lot of them as we walk through fields. I walked through a lot of fields, but there was, you know, out of probably 50 fields that I visited last year, I had only one or two that I would say, yes, the numbers are at the rate that you probably need to do something, at least a spotted control. But I know there are places that were heavily damaged too. So, uh, yeah. My experience, if you can still hear me, is it's in oil seed crops that the damage is severe. It's flax and mustard and canola. Yeah. And it, they'll just strip those seeds right out of the pond mm -hmm. so fast. It'll, yeah. But yeah. But yeah, it's just, but, but yeah, I'm getting recommendations from my local chemical guys, like a full rate of Mustang Max and a quarter rate of organophosphate, like a warrior or something. And I, I just... Nope, nobody can seem to get on the same page whether that's right or not. Warrior is a pyrethroid. Um, but the thing is, if you Warrior have uh, if you have adults, um, go with the full rate. Um, you know, if at nymphal stage, you know, they may be you may be able to get away with uh, not full rate, but again. Most of the damage that we are seeing is with the adult, or I've seen or heard about uh, has been with adults. And for adults, uh, I personally wouldn't recommend uh, lower dosage, whatever maximum recommended dose is probably what you want to go with for, for grasshoppers. Okay. Yeah, I think, oh, okay, you, you have, we still have you, all right. So yeah, for, uh, I don't, I, I, yeah, but again, uh, check, uh, check that handbook because there are a lot of chemicals that are recommended and you could choose from that list. And if you email me, I can actually send you the link uh, if you don't have that link. Okay, but no truth then to the residual part of pyrethroid or is that... Like, like you're worried with grasshoppers, you can kill the ones in the field, but it's the ones in the neighbor's field that'll be there the next day that you try to avoid. But uh, is there anything that way? Yeah, the residual uh, effect is something that, again, is has been brought up. Uh, you want to use for grasshoppers. If you have an outbreak, you want to have some extended protection. So uh, using chemicals that have high residual would be recommended. But again, when it comes to insecticides, I'm very hesitant to, you know, because it's impacting natural enemy populations. So there is just this, this uh, trade-off that you need to consider. Do you actually need to use insecticides? But yes, if you apply something that is going to be there only for a few days, and then you have to reapply, that would be a problem. Um, so apply something that at least provides you with a couple of weeks of protection. 
Um, that would be my personal, that's what I would do personally in my field. Um, but again, keep in mind that there are conditions that, you know, if you spray and you get bad weather, you know, it doesn't mean that your spray um, is going to be effective. And um, I remember seeing some recommendations there in cases that you need to go and redo uh, the application. I can dig those up and um, provide that, uh, that documentation to you. Uh, but I just don't remember on top of my head all those details. Okay, well, thanks. Hmm. You're welcome. Hey, Rush. It's Jared Spackman. Hi, Jared. Uh, quick question. What are the natural predators besides like birds and things like, what are the other insect predators for grasshoppers? Grasshoppers. So they eat each other, for example. But yeah, that's a good question. Birds are one of the main predators. Uh, you know, we have some generalist predators that would feed on them. There are some large wasps that could feed on them. Um, predatory beetles, uh, especially when these are at the nymphalous stage, they're, they're out there in the field to feed on them. There's not much work done on uh, parasit parasitic wasps, but there are, there are wasp parasitoids that will lay eggs um, uh, in grasshoppers too. So um, they are, as I said, there are a lot of entomopathogenic, um, uh, uh, organisms that are out there that will infect, um, grasshoppers, uh, uh Boveria bassiana is some, is one that is registered and, uh, is available in the U S and, uh, you can apply, but there is another species of Boveria, uh, uh, Akari or something like that that is used in Australia. We don't have it here uh, in the US. We haven't been able to found it in the US, to find it in the US yet, but that appeared to be very effective uh, natural enemy uh, against grass, grasshoppers too. But yes, grasshoppers, when you have large populations, uh, they feed in on one another, and perhaps that would actually keep them in line when they're moving. Um, so if they actually go the wrong direction, they're going to be food for another grasshopper or, or, or katydid when it comes, um, when it comes to, uh, uh, Mormon crickets, for example, it's a very common behavior that they have. So, yeah. And, and the, 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 the predator changes as, um, uh, they increase in their size. So the smaller they are, they could be handled by a lot of those, uh, common general generalist predators as they get bigger uh the range of predators that could feed on them becomes smaller and smaller cool thank you they actually have some interesting mechanisms as they become adults to protect themselves from uh predators you know they're pretty strong in kicking off predators um they uh a lot of these species of grasshoppers, they have bright coloration in their wings um, that they use to scare predators, or they actually use it as a mechanism to, um, to hide. So, you know, when they take off, these predators are following them. They look for those color patterns on their wing, and then they land. So they just match their background, and the predators is still having the search image of that color spot and they try to find the grasshopper, but now the grasshopper is matching the background so they can get away from predatory birds, which appear to be one of their main um, uh, predators for the adults of the adult stage. Um, they have uh, 
this death feigning behavior as well. Some species of grasshoppers, they just become stiff and they don't move and the birds can't even eat them like that. So, um, and there are nice videos of uh, frogs and birds trying to eat uh, grasshoppers on YouTube if you look it up. So yeah, they also evolved to defend themselves against those predators as well. Okay, are there any other questions? Not seeing any. So I think we will thank Arash for his time today and great information. We really appreciate uh, the detail that you went into and taking time to answer all the questions. I think that this is a great format where we can have a little bit more of a conversation on these topics. And wanna just encourage everybody who participated today live to please fill out the evaluation that you will receive. And anybody who had registered and is watching this delayed, you will also receive that. So even if it's later, please fill out that evaluation so that we can um, make these even more useful for growers and also recommend new topics for future webinars. So thank you everybody for your time, Arash. Thank you and appreciate everybody's time. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Thank you. And it was good to see you all. Bye-bye.